Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. It is Sunday the 15th of November. I don't know why I am saying that in such a happy tone. Maybe I've just decided I need to bring a new level of energy to these proceedings. Michael, how have you been? I'm fine. I suppose maybe you're thinking if it's the 15th of November, that means it's what? Uh, 39 more sleeps till Santi, which is a... You know, always a happy prospect. It is, or maybe it's because I'm being told that from uh, last week, I think, uh, women are effectively working for free, so I've enjoyed my first week of free labour. Yeah, yeah. Now, maybe you can clarify this, because I've been looking around, where do you go to get the free women? Because, uh, and I'm not looking for very highly qualified, you know, I'm not looking for super-duper lawyers or chemists or physicists or anything, but um, having some work done in the house... And I'd like someone to come in and do a bit of a tidy, a bit of a dust around, you know. Um, and the free thing sounds really good because, you know, frankly, I can't afford to pay anyone. But I can't find them, Gary. It's hard, Michael. I know, I know. I haven't really been looking around for free women or loose women, but I'm sure there are some around the place. It's it's weird because I've seen TDs and it's on RTE saying, um, this, this is a direct quote from from Ingrid Miley, their industry and employment correspondent, from, and this is from November the 9th, I think, from today until the end of the year, the average Irish woman will effectively be working for free. Yeah, um, the, you had, the, the agriculture spokesman for the Social Democrats, Darren Corr, was tweeting about it, and it was very bad. The, the RTE article then commits the cardinal sin, Michael of improperly using the phrase ironic. Oh, slaps there. Because that day was apparently equal pay day, which ironically highlights the lack of equality in pay. My advice to writers is just don't use the word ironically, because there's several definitions, and some of them require the direct intercession of God. I always like the definition given by Baldrick in Black Blackadder. Irony. It's like Goldie, but not the same. And if that's the easiest way to remember it. But this wasn't just people in West Cork, Gary, or RTE. This was, you know, uh, whatever about West Cork. I mean, obviously nobody takes RTE seriously. But the European Commission was sending out on their official tweeting stationery and social media stuff, talk, you know, working our way to a course quality, saying that there's a 14% wage gap and... Or was it a pay gap? See, I, I really like equal pay day because any other day... When someone brings out the statistics on um, on gender-based pay, and you make the point, you, you explain it, people go, "Well, no one, no, no one, everyone understands what it is and what it is not." And then every equal pay day, they come out and say women are effectively working for free, which rather strongly suggests that actually, no, you don't understand it, or if you do understand it, you're being pretty grossly uh, misleading to those who don't, such as the public who don't really have time to read detailed statistical analysis of gender pay. So it is true that the average woman earns less than the average man. What that doesn't mean is that any particular woman in a particular industry earns less than a man in the same industry uh, working the same hours. This is one of those remarkable bad pennies. Yeah, but then when you complain about it, people are like, no, no, we all, we all know that. You, you stop trying to explain it. We're trying to make an important point. It's Christina Hoff Summers, the American philosopher. Mm -hmm. 
I remember several years she did a a a, 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 a YouTube series YouTube's on this in the United States. There's that um, young uh, economist works. I think she works. The Adam Smith. She's talked about this ad nauseum. Every year she comes out and she does the the breakdown. And it is apparently important for certain reasons that this is done by the critique of this, the debunking of this is to be done by women. And yet it comes up. And I, I don't mind the fact that it comes up in a sense from people who just hear about this, they see figures and they think, oh, that's terrible. But the fact that it's been done by taxpayer funded groups like the European Commission, like RTE, like the government. When I, I can't believe that these people don't actually know what the truth of the matter is. I, it seems to me they're engaged in some kind of deliberative, performative act of gross dishonesty. Maybe for some higher purpose, what that would be, I don't know. But, okay, we, we're, we're all, we're talking about this. for example, if people are wondering, well, how can this be true? Because what they're not doing is comparing, now, correct me if and when, not more than if, but when I go around, they're not comparing like with like, are they? They're not saying a woman who is doing this job for this amount of time, for this amount of hours, versus a man doing exactly the same thing. But they're comparing our global earnings. They take all the money earned by women, take all the money earned by all the men, and they divide them by the number, they come out with a figure, and they say, look, men get paid more than women. That Yeah, that is basically it. And even with, they're not comparing like for like an industry-based uh, and role-based comparisons. The other thing that some of them do, and this is why you can actually get different rates with this, is some compare all employment and some only compare, compare full-time employment. And that makes a massive difference because women make heavier use of part-time employment. So simply by virtue of working part-time, you will earn significantly less money because you're not working full-time. That, that would seem obvious. And so if you don't take things in like that into account, you get a massive difference. Now, here's the thing. There's, there's a lot of talk about this, and a lot of this is terrible. Uh, I'm not sure it is terrible, even if they're right. And they're not right in the way they think they are. But even if there is a... If men and women doing the same job earn different wages, I don't think it's an issue, and that's for a pretty simple reason. The best study on this issue, on this area... I think has ever been done, was a study by Uber. Uh, I, we've talked about this in the podcast, but not for, I don't think we talked about it this year. And that study looked at, I think it was 1.8 million Uber rides. Now, for those who don't know how Uber works, it's a ride sharing app. In America, you don't have to be a taxi driver. Anyone can sign up for it as long as you have uh, the relevant insurance, I think, and the relevant um, driver's license. But it's... Basically, if you are using it, you request Lyft, anyone can take it, and you don't get to choose if it's a man or a woman. No one knows the gender of those involved. So it's effectively gender blind. And they did this massive study of nearly 2 million rides and found that women on average earn 7% less than men. But the thing there is that it's totally self-directed. You, people who drive on Uber, often people will do it as a second job or they'll do it in their free time. But they decide when they do it, where they do it, and how they do it. And yet there was still a gender pay gap. And it was interesting when they actually looked into why that was. Um, because there were small behavioural differences, like tiny behavioural differences. I think it was 
One was men drove something like 2% faster. And that meant you could fit in additional rides when you actually uh, did it over the course. And that men would do more on social hours and that men would do uh, more work in worse neighborhoods. Which is to say that men were maximizing for profit. And women were leaning more towards comfort. Men were accepting that you can do jobs in shitty neighborhoods and at terrible times. And because of the pricing on Uber, it's it's flexible. It goes up and down depending on how many other people are, are offering rides. You can make more money if you're willing to make yourself less comfortable. And so both groups were, were seeking to do different things. They were both trying to make money, but how they wanted to make money was different. And that was leading to massive alternative outcomes. And I think that is I think that is probably the best study on the area I've ever seen done, mostly because they weren't looking for anything on any sort of gender pay gap. And when they found it, their the report is full of a great deal of very sort of frantic explanations of uh, how they're not saying that there's no systemic discrimination. Let's not let's not read into that too much and start shouting at Uber. That would be bad. But you know, this is just interesting. This discussion I'm saying about how this keeps coming up. If anybody's interested, they, if you go onto Google and uh, out YouTube rather, there's a there's a discussion of this which I think goes back to the 1970s, and Thomas Sowell is on a television program in the United States and having this discussion, this debate with um, a prominent uh, ad, uh, advocate and lawyer, lady, uh, and he has Thomas Sowell is a great guy for crunching the numbers and doing the figures and going back going back to the data back to the data always the data and he's even then in the united states in the united states it may have been different maybe more advanced to the rest of the world on this issue so even then he said if you controlled by by comparing he said the different he said one of the things people didn't do is they said single as opposed to uh, uh married he said that which hid something he said hit those people who had been married and were now single. So he said, when you controlled for single women against women who had never married, he found that single women actually earned slightly more than men. The big factor is that what changes is marriage. Now, there are other factors as well, but marriage is certainly a, a factor. Now, I, I, I want to slightly disagree with you there, Michael, because I, I've heard this put forward and I've heard this knocked back by uh, women's rights campaigners saying that, that you know that's that's still a bias against them, but I don't. I think the problem there is that that is the end point, and yes, that does cause differences in earnings, but I don't think it's the root cause. I and, and I I, well, I don't know if you're going to what I was going to say was if you look at the statistics, say for Ireland, and this is not unique to Ireland, that today if you look at say graduate employment, not just graduate employment, certainly graduate employment, women and comparing women to men aged uh, 20 to 30, women will actually earn slightly more than men. That changes after the 30s because that's, now, the reason that marriage affects it is maybe, it seems to me, is from what we have seen about the studies, is because people, different people make different choices and different people have different priorities. This I this I think is actually the root of it that it's not a it's not a, a marriage uh, bias it's not a, a gender bias as such it's a question of prioritization 
and if men and women on average have different priorities in life. And so the Citizens Assembly met recently and they were, for those who don't know, there's a Citizens Assembly on a gender at the minute. And it's mostly the, the women's groups just running riot and saying whatever they want. Uh, I will not make any joke about that because it will be played back to me at a later day and I won't sound good. But it was interesting to see what they're recommending because they're all doing things like, well, we need more uh, flexible uh, working time. We need more legal interference in the employment market. We need higher minimum wage, which consider a lot of women are on um, part-time jobs and a lot of them are in retail and things like that. That would bring up their wages immediately and it would have a disproportionate positive effect on women compared to men. And, you know, stuff like ending, uh, putting in place pay transparency. But flexible working hours is the big thing. Flexible working hours is the thing they want for you to be able to control your hours to the greatest possible degree. And they seem to think that this will increase female participation in the workforce. Now, the studies I've seen, and there actually isn't that this much work on it that's of a good quality, is that there are two effects of flexible working time, and they've only considered the former. The first one is that it increases retention of women who become pregnant or who otherwise would normally leave the workforce at lower managerial levels. So it keeps those women in the workforce on reduced hours. And the second is it seems to negatively impact on promotion uh, prospects for women. Because more women than men take flexible working uh, time. In some countries, in other countries, it's actually pretty equal. But even where it's equal, what is interesting is that men tend to take flexible working time. That means they go into the office more often. Women take uh, like telecommuting kind of options. And when you read some of the polling that's been done on women on this and the surveying of it, a lot of them think that that has damaged their careers. And when you actually look at it, it looks like it is damaging their careers because you're not building the kind of informal links with people in the company that would be helpful to you getting promoted. And people may say that's unfair and it should be based on work. But as someone who's had to hire people, it's kind of like a clusterfuck. Like you don't know how a person is going to perform at a higher level of a role based on how they've done at a previous level. And it's a great principle that people get promoted to the level of their own incompetence. That everyone eventually gets promoted to the level where they are least effective. Because their good work is always level below them and then you stop promoting them and they just sit there. But informal things like a gauge of someone's temperament or their interests or things like that are actually really, really helpful. And you don't get them in an interview, which is one of the advantages of um, effectively promoting people you know. So I think that the thing that, that these people are all pushing for is actually probably going to hurt women who are trying to get over lower level managerial. But it, what it won't do is help narrow the their total earning differential. But it will give them other choices. I think what it will what it won't do is produce the outcome that they expected to. No, and I, I, I just want to explain slightly why that is, because yes, people talk about children, and yes, people talk about domestic uh, care and doing things around the home, but they're taking those, I think, as the end, or as the start point, or I think they're actually the end point. So there's a study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America in 2015. I think, I think the authors are all women. And... Um, the article was titled, 
compared to men, women view professional advancement as equally attainable, but less desirable. And basically what that research looked at was they went to women and men at different levels of their professional career in different industries. And they just asked them, what do you want from work and what do you want in life? And a couple of other survey questions to get a general sense of them. And what they found is that consistently men place a higher emphasis on achievements related to employment. Women, for their part, believed that those that the goals that the men had set were attainable for them. They just didn't think they were either desirable or as desirable. Because they, when they asked them what about those goals they liked and didn't like, women listed far more negative outcomes, mostly ones that would conflict with other life goals. So women in general placed a greater emphasis on friendship, on children, on things outside work that would be hurt by working 90 hours a week in one of the big four. There was a very large piece of social psychological uh, research that had been done out of the States and connected with what you're saying was identity. That men, for men, their, their work role played a far larger part in their sense of themselves and their identity than it did for women. Women saw, them, saw themselves, who worked, saw that part as part of their lives. But it wasn't the most important part of their lives. But whereas for, for very many men, it was a large part or the most important part of their sense of themselves was their sense of, was, their, was the sense they got from the work they did. It was a fundamental different, a different evaluation of the importance of the, the job. One of the one of the questions I thought was really interesting about this, and I'll, I'll put a link to the study below this. Although you might need a um, you might need a subscription to get access to it, unless you go down the uh, the Russian route and use that website, which I can't name because that would be a bad thing. That takes all of the scientific papers effectively published in the West and puts them online for free. But uh, no one no one would do such a thing, Michael. But one of the um, one of the things that was interesting is they asked women and men if they would go for a higher power position and give a couple of options and men were always more likely to say yes even when they were told that the the higher power uh, job the higher responsibility job would have wouldn't require any additional effort from them they wouldn't have to work anymore it would just be a higher prestige a higher responsibility job and men were still far more likely than women uh, to go ahead. And that, uh, that kind of... The interesting thing was that women were as positive about these jobs. They were just far more negative. As in they had a slightly more holistic view of what would happen here. One of the odd incoherences in a lot of these discussions is, on one hand, there's the assumption that the reason women aren't doing these jobs are because of social constructions or blocks or attitudes in society or a lack of confidence in women which has been bred into them because of the same social attitudes and blocks. On the other hand, if you come along and say, well, actually, women are making different choices. There's an underlying all of this. There's a it's like the, the the choices that women are making are bad choices or less are lesser choices that women should be going for the big job they should be working longer hours that work should be more important and precisely the same people who seem to be saying this are also the, the people who are, are very often very critical of the lives that men lead the types of choices they make or the or capitalism 
our corporate culture in general. Isn't it possible that women actually have a better and more balanced approach to life than men do? Well, I mean, that's, that's actually one of the things that this, this study touched on. Because when they asked, they asked men and women about power. And both men and women agreed that one of the main rewards or consequences of moving up in your job was accruing power. But when they asked men and women, how much do you want that power? Women were far less interested than men in it. And it, I think you are right on that. And it's, it's one of, I think, the really interesting things about the modern feminist movement as it relates to work. They have built a hierarchy on which the traditional male ideal of power and control uh, embodied by position and wage is now the highest aspect of this thing, is the highest ideal you can go to, and it is the standard by which women are judged. But the thing here is, when we look at this and we see that women say there are other things in their life they care about more, and that they think they would have to make sacrifices for these things quite accurately from what I've seen, that's not to say they're worse off or they're less happy. They may have a lower wage, but have a far higher life satisfaction, and that is the thing here, that this appears to be something, when you look at individuals, they are primarily happy with their choices, or at least as happy as one can be. So it's only when you look at it through this very masculine lens that you can say, and this is a problem. But I think when you actually, you look into the actual reporting on it of individual basis, or um, you consider sort of the wider whole, the, the, the person's general life, I think there's a very strong argument that women may in fact be right about this. But isn't there something tremendously patronising about what the response to that is? Which is, oh, they're happy. Are they? They're, they're happy with being in second place. They're content. By making these choices, they're somehow being passive and rather feeble. No, but that's understandable, Gary. I'll put this to you. That you talked about power. Maybe that's the clue. That since the since this well before but certainly since the second world war the central tool and analytical understanding of the world on the left is that everything is ultimately about power and they don't really consider any other issue as being important everything is about the possession of power or the accrual of power but it's 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 not even just power though because there you can do the study of power is actually fascinating because you can look at things like in Japan, uh, salary men just give control of their bank accounts to their wives and their wives pays them effectively an allowance. But when you look at the, the sort of power uh, that's being considered here and is being held up, it's hard power, it's ownership, it is direct control. Whereas, yeah, there's also, there's even if you're just interested in power, there's soft power, there's power of influence. Controlling something does not. In the, shall we say, in what we people like to call the postmodernist analysis, they don't consider ultimately soft power, which is weird. I mean, Gramsci talks about this. You know, this, if you talk about the power of soft power, like the soft power that women might possess over men, the, the power within the family dynamics, the, the power, the power, the power of sexuality. The, power of affection, the power of love, the power of education. They don't take these really terribly seriously. They, the only kind of power they really take seriously is hard power. Yeah, which is which is traditionally been the most masculine form of power. 
which is strange in that even in the even in their understanding of power, they seem to denigrate what would traditionally be considered more feminine means of control, which are absolutely as effective, if not more so, because often people don't realise that they're being acted upon or there is a power balance. In the same way that you see women, are they control the majority of household spending. That's a form of power. You have control. Wasn't that one of the great discoveries that people made uh, in marketing for years, marketers? Yeah, they've been trying to sell shit to men and then they suddenly realised, oh yeah, men are earning the money, but it's actually women who are controlling how it's spent, bar large purchases. It was for years, if they were selling washing machines, dishwashers, that kind, they sold those to women. But they didn't sell cars to women. They sold cars to men. And then somebody actually went and looked and they discovered, do you know what? Most decisions regarding cars are in families. The ultimate decider was the woman. Men had desires. They might want the fast, pointy, shiny thing. But again and again, in family centers, the, the last the choice, even if sometimes men weren't quite aware of it, but women were very much part of the decision-making process. So they suddenly decided to start selling cars to women. Uh, the, and that's an exa- the, 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 the organization of, of, shall we say, soft power dynamics within a family situation. But if there's another issue. I mean, this is not a, a massive thing, but another part of the story as well, which is constantly discounted, is and this may not be fair and it might be tweakable to a degree but i don't think it's massively tweakable is okay if you look at in say the professions graduates whatever there's a certain there's potentially a a level playing field although if you look across pretty well every profession every discipline there are more women in universities than there are men there are more female graduates than there are men, there are female, more female postgraduates than there are men. Women score higher uh, on average in their degrees and their postgraduate degrees than men do. So how level the playing field is, it's hard to say. But if you're talking about people who don't have educational, a high level of educational qualifications or connections or involvement in a business, women have a fairly restricted choice of earning possibilities at the lower end of the market. If you're a young man and you're willing to put yourself in the way of danger and you're healthy and physically strong, there are jobs you can do which will pay you very well. If you're a lot, 97% of logging workers are men, which also has a fatality rate of per 100,000 of 132. Now, the average, these are the figures from the United States, the average fatality rate per thousand workers in the whole country is 3.4, okay? So, it's 3.4 is the national average. Locking workers die at a rate of 132 per thousand. So, it's a very, very dangerous occupation. And if you look at all of the most dangerous occupations, say top 20, they're all massively dominated by men the other farm farmers and agricultural workers are in the mid 70s but other than that mining is 99 99% fishing workers 99.9% roofers um construction workers this is a physical thing but Jonathan they couldn't you couldn't if you wanted if that was a big thing in your life to organize your society to encourage more women to go into these cement and concrete manufacturing business you could do that the fact is that these jobs are which have 
very high levels of mortality are done by men and principally by young men and they are compensated for discomfort and for high risk with uh, high financial rewards no, but there's only a certain period of time you can do these things and that will also distort the figures to a degree that you, that you don't the the kinds of jobs that women at the bottom end of the of of, of the the training ladder are doing like say child care um, retail waiting and wait wait staff in hotels or restaurants that domestic help cleaning staff janitorial staff that kind of thing is not well paid however I'm not sure exactly, Gary, what the fatality rate would be for cleaners. But I think it's probably less than people fishing for crabs in the waters off the Alaska. And therefore, the compensation is probably not quite matching up. Well, I mean, compensation doesn't directly equate to the risk of the job. It relates to supply of labour. But the supply of labour is related... Is impacted by risk, yes. But just... just to be technically correct. All the talk of this, the discussion of this in, in any sort of official capacity is, now focuses on these very narrow bands and never actually seems to ask, is there any evidence of systemic bias? Because if one could show systemic bias, that would be something. I mean, there used to be systemic biases. There were uh, limits on how many women could uh, go into certain fields. There were bans on women attaining higher education quite a while ago at this point. And she got married. She had to stop working. What you see, what you saw in when the bans on women entering higher education were lifted, women rapidly flooded into certain fields and not really into others. But as I said, I think as I, said, I think the, the debate on this is myopic in the extreme and doesn't actually seem to take into account will this actually make anyone better off as in happier as in more secure with their life is anyone actually feeling stopped by this and as well as that we seem to refuse to talk about the idea that men and women are different and that they have different wants i mean if you were to anonymize these results michael and take two groups and just say this is what one group says it wants in life and this is what another group wants in life and no other data you would absolutely predict that those people would achieve different things but both be perfectly happy with that because they wanted different things. And that can mean that people work in different ways. Singapore used to limit the amount of women that could uh, graduate, that could become doctors. They lifted the, um, the quota in 2003, but the reasoning for the quota was interesting. And it was this. They were letting in less qualified men than women, and they said there were two basic arguments for it. One, they said that the actual testing... Um, wasn't really an effective way of deciding who could take up a career in medicine. But they that wasn't they were just using that to put the, the test scores slightly aside. The actual argument they said was that the attrition rate of female doctors was about 19%. It was about 5 to 8% for male doctors. And because this is Singapore, they just ran the numbers and went, well, if we increase the number of female doctors, statistically more of them will leave the workforce or will limit their hours. So in order to ensure the greatest medical coverage possible, we're actually going to bias it the other way because then we'll have more doctors. And when they got rid of it, it wasn't because people complained that this was terribly unfair, although some people did, but it's Singapore and they don't really care. Mm-hmm. It was because they said that the attrition rates had um, had not equalized, but had gotten within about 6% of each other. So they said, okay, we'll relax it. Um, that was 
partially because female doctors were were less likely to leave the profession and more because male doctors had become more likely to leave the profession. <laughs> so attrition rates had gone up with men. But if if you're talking if you're doing this whole sort of well we want equal outcomes stuff like that would be things that you'd look at but no one wants that in the west because it's let's I would describe that proposal in an Irish context as um staggeringly unpopular. I was talking to a GP uh, some time ago and we're talking about the changes in practices and his practice and you know, over the last couple of generations in doctors he said it is universally the case that you're seeing more and more shall we say formalization of GP practices where once upon a time you'd have had a practice which would have just opened the office doors at a certain time in the morning you had morning afternoon surgery maybe evening surgery in some places you just walked in you got a doctor he said, increasingly, now it's been done by appointment only. It's been, you have to book, you have to say which doctor you want, and when they want it, and the times. Times are limited, or times are defined, so you, you'll have practice meetings and you'll be, people will see how many you're seeing and what your average shows time spend is per patient, whether that's efficient. He said, this is being driven, in his experience again and again, by women doctors, he said, because they were demanding a certain balance in their lives. He said that, and the thing you're talking, it's interesting you're talking about the, I just wonder if this might be connected, the attrition rate in men going up, because he said that if, both in his experience and the experience of other practices, he said, that you had, you're talking to male doctors who suddenly realized that they hadn't had a life in many ways <laughs> until at, pra wherever the, when the practice had at the insistence of the female doctors in the practice changed the way they organized themselves they suddenly found they could control their lives far more and they had far, they had more time they had more uh, which and they but they'd been unaware because this was just the way you behaved this is what it was to be a doctor in general practice in ireland and he but he said this is the future he said the uh, the old style walk in anytime any day that's that's gone and he said it's going to become increasingly true because if you go if you say, which he he, might, he, he does, he, he teaches, you know, there's a five-year specialization now in GP, which you have to do. And you go to those, you're, you're teaching those classes where you're teaching people who are going into general practice. You're going to be looking at classes which maybe are 85, 15, 90, 10, women to men. That was in his experience. I don't know if those numbers are scientific, but that was, he said, his experience was vastly more uh, women doctors than men doctors going into general practice. And that will, re and their work habits will, will change, and will reflect the kind of service you were offered. Now he said, you, how this impacts on the service that you you're offered. He said nobody's talking about it, because you can't. Because the implication would then be that women and men and male doctors and 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 women doctors might behave in different ways and have different responses to organizing their work lives. And you're just not allowed to talk about that because that's that's not something we can consider to be possibly true. I mean, what, that would actually be quite interesting to see. I d I'm not aware of any work on that, but that would be interesting on, on two levels. One, the immediate, does it actually have an impact on service provision? Because that's an interesting policy point. And the second would be, do female doctors have better outcomes with patients? Mm -hmm. Because one of the, the primary reasons for let's say a lot of the alternative health things and a lot of the reasons that they do actually work and which i and when i argue that we should have alternative medicine on the hse is because they're very cheap and they're very effective at what they do and it's it's due to this very simple thing most people who go to a gp particularly those with children are not there to be cured of anything they're there to be reassured of something and yes so 
female doctors, females on average rate higher in empathy and warmth. But it also, also tend to do better on, on listening tests. So if you take that, are they more likely to show warmth to patients? Does that reassure patients? Because then so much of this is mental, does that actually improve patient outcome? Um, which is a fascinating area of study in its own right. The fact that you can influence patient outcome not by treatment, but by basically tonality and, and warmth. There's a fascinating study done on, on, on this in the States where they looked at the alternative, complementary alternative medicines. And they're making the kind of, the point I think you're making is that most people going into, into, sort of into your local doctor, they weren't necessarily worried about any one particular serious illness. They were looking at fairly low-grade things. But on average, they had seven concerns. There was a principal health concern, and then there would be six others. On average, the consultation with the doctor would last 17 minutes. The first consultation would last around 10 to 11 minutes, which would deal with the principal concern. And then each of the other concerns would get, on average, one minute. The response when studied was that patients didn't feel heard. They didn't feel that the doctor had heard them, had really had listened. On the other hand, when they went into an alternative uh, practitioner, the practitioner might spend an hour with them. But not just that, but actually, and this seemed to be important, they thought in the study, there, there was actual physical contact in a lot of the time, which might have been touching, feeling, massaging, whatever, but actual physical contact from the practitioner. Because the results were better than placebo. It's interesting. This is the sort of general area of kind of research and policy choice that you can't really make. Because no one is going to suggest that, let's say, if service provision is impacted by women, that there should be a bias towards men. But then if patient outcomes are influenced by women, maybe there should be a bias towards women. Because the actual... If you wanted to go down this route and actually look at things in this detail, it would be it politically wouldn't work. But no one has any particular interest in that. And I would suspect part of that might be if you poll, when, when they surveyed men and women on particularly safety threats or on how they rate other people based on sex, men tend to have higher positive feelings towards women and have higher levels of protective feeling towards women. Yes. Women have higher levels of respect for women and a higher levels of protectiveness for women, which is why it's very easy to sell a policy on the basis of it protects women. Yeah. So this it's all kind of a little bit lopsided. But there's there's one question that you may know the answer to this. I don't. We have had legislation f- regarding equal pay and discrimination for a long time now in Europe and in Ireland. If there is some kind of institution or systemic bias occurring regarding the payment of women. Where are all of the lawsuits? Where's all the litigation? And, and there are companies now, I, I think particularly tech companies in the United States that actually will circulate or publish, I think within a degree, or maybe they're not doing that anymore, but they used to, they were doing it for a while, publish salaries. And in companies, people will find out or they suspect. And if you suspect, and you go to, you, you can go to your lawyer and you demand to know, Am I being paid? Am I being discriminated against? Where is there a, a, a massive amount of litigation going on out there that we haven't heard about? There, there have been cases brought under it. My, the yeah, there have been point. cases, but I could think of actually I could name two or three because they were reported in the press. The point uh, I, I would I would make on systemic 
pay inequalities that are not the result of any sort of difference in working profession or just asking at interviews or stuff like that, but actually structural pay issues within a company. It, Milton Friedman made the argument. I think this may actually be the first time I've ever said anything about uh, Milton Friedman on the show. He made the argument that um, if you wanted equality between men and women in pay, you should remove all equal pay legislation. For the yes. simple reason that this. If you are a company and you are going to treat women badly in some way, and another company is going to treat women well, that company will have a competitive advantage over you because they will find it easier to get staff and staff of a high quality. And that over time, that would likely drive the uh, more negative businesses to either change their practices or lose market share over time. And I think uh, it's one of the arguments I think he was largely right on. He, he plays the same rationality to laws regarding racial discrimination. That He said that actually by introducing legislation which demands... Uh, equality of treatment. He said, you're actually, what you're doing is, you're effectively taking away the economic penalty from the person that wants to discriminate. Because now, he said, for example, he said, a company, I, I have, there's company A, and company A will not employ, will not employ uh, people of colour. Just won't do it. Company B will, but only at a discount. Mm. They'll, they'll pay them 75% of what they would pay their white workers. Now, on the face of it, that's well, not in the face of that's unfair and unjust and sorts of bad things. And he said, well, but on the other hand, if you a half loaf is better than no loaf, so you take a job. Now, the company that's willing to employ uh, people of colour at 75% now has a significant competitive advantage over the company that won't employ, that won't employ uh, people of colour at all. And as the market evolves and as the things change, people of colour will become more desirable and more effective because they will just demonstrate their abilities and people and their way the, the wage gap will 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 narrow and the company that refuses to employ them will suffer from their competitive and will either have to change their behaviors or go out of business the example he gives is some american football team i don't know the story which apparently never did would refuse to employ black footballers and was just disastrously bad just lost all the time season after season and eventually they just had to give in and uh, hire black footballers because black footballers were, were in that field uh, of endeavour, were more excellent than white footballers. And then they, they started to do well. The problem is if you create legislation, that means for equality of pay, the, the company that won't employ people of colour still doesn't employ people of colour. So you can't force someone to, to give someone a job. They can, they can screen the, by their process, they can screen who they're going to employ. But on the other hand, the other company that will employ people of colour loses its competitive advantage. Now, you, there are, I'm sure there are arguments you could have about that, but it's an interesting take on the nature of legislation and the unintended, the possible unintended consequences of what is well-intentioned legislation. Yes, and it's also the wonderful joy of uh, politically consensus uh, topics. Because you cannot actually have a lot of the research on it won't be done because the issue is just not a popular issue for people. I think it's also being complicated at the minute because a lot of this, some of it you would argue is socialization, but some of it would be biologically driven. And that's a pretty fraught topic at the minute because Ooh. every time someone comes out with something on it, they get a wonderful backlash from the more insane fringe of transgender activists. 
because that's not good. And the gender critical theorists don't like it either. But Michael, from work to workaholic, Michal Martin. Oh, it's a fantastic. It's, it's a lovely. He's got a, he's got a big interview in the Irish <laughs> Independent big, today. In the hard hitting interview, I think. Ah, oh, yeah, like steel. <laughs> God, but he stood up to it like a, like a boxer, not facing uh, Katie Taylor. I suppose would be a way of thinking. Do you see that? Don't you just love the headline? Workaholic Michal Martin on Christmas restrictions, yeah. COVID nineteen vaccine, and the noise around the job. You know when you read um when you read uh, a profile or an article, and there's some minor fact in it which is mentioned, and you you have a feeling it's mentioned in a particular way, but you read it in an entirely different way. Yeah. So on the second paragraph of this piece, it's by Neve Horan. I'll I'll link it in the bottom of the of the thing. It says that um it's talking about Michal Martin being in his office. His team hasn't had the time to hang the portrait of Eamon de Valera, which sits on the floor in the next room. And I think this is meant to, you know, present that he's so hardworking, everything is so, you know, it's so frantic, Michael. And I just read it as, Michal Martin has some shit staff, which means he's made some shit staffing decisions, which may rather explain a lot of the problems with the current government. <laughs> this is a man who can't organise someone to put a picture up. It doesn't sound like... That doesn't sound like busyness. That sounds like chaos to me. Every morning. That's basic. Do you know actually what it is? I've just realised what it is. I don't know if you ever watched the programme, Faulty Towers, but there's a whole episode of Faulty Towers dedicated to Basil trying to put up a moose head. Michal Martin is Basil Faulty desperately trying to put up a picture of Eamon de Valera and failing. And I doesn't, that doesn't fill me with uh, hope. Yeah, Michael, there have been days where, like, I've just been frantically flat out working. But on those days, on the day, on parts where I was taking a phone call as opposed to writing something, I really feel I could have walked over to a wall <laughs> and hung a painting while on the call, possibly without the other person even knowing it was happening. Gary, this, is, this story is part of a rich political tradition. Anybody who's ever been to Rome will know there's a... The famous Victor Emmanuel monument in the middle of Rome, which is the, what they call the wedding cake. And that's on Piazza Venezia, which is where they find Palazzo Venezia. And Palazzo Venezia is where Mussolini had his offices. And up on the third, I think, the third floor, over near the balcony, that was the window. And everybody knew the window where Mussolini's office was. And the light in that office, Gary, stayed on every night till two, three in the morning. You could pass by, you see the light burning bright in Il Duce's office. And the people of Rome and the people of Italy knew the Duce was in the room, working hard for them because he was a, he was a workaholic. And then maybe around three o'clock, the light would go out. Ah, thankfully, Duce is taking some little rest. But he'd be up again at half seven, you know, eating his boiled rice. And I, so this is, this is just a part of a rich political tradition. Himself and Il Duce working. Margaret Thatcher was that the story of Thatcher? She never got more than four hours sleep or something. Yeah, I, 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 I do. This, this says he works every night until eleven p.m., which just reminds me of the stories from when Simon Harris was health minister, and he would apparently also work to ten or eleven p.m., which just makes me think like, get better usage of your time, people. And I say that as someone who regularly work during the night. Michael, you know we've had calls at two in the morning. Oh, yeah. I regularly stay up to three to work. But that's because I like I siesta during part of the day because I sleep later. 
Whereas these people just don't seem to have good management. There are two things I really liked. One where he, you know, he's uh, he's talking about Cork beating Kerry and to celebrate. And his idea of a celebration is to have a few beers and a boiled egg. Ugh! <laughs> just... A beer and a boiled egg? And then the the part where the uh, Lee Horan goes in uh, and compliments the uh, the fireplace and says it's it's designed by a particular Italian craftsman and it's quite rare and expensive, and he just goes, "Is that right? I didn't know that. How he put that in?" <laughs> Why does that not surprise me? No, no. That, I mean that how he put it in. <laughs> Oh, that's, that's wonderful. The, the interview itself is, is it's largely a puff piece. Like it's. But you know, you're right though about this whole thing about time and work and organisation. I worked in an Italian office for years and nobody left until eight o'clock. I would be sometimes there till half nine. And there was a rule I, which I saw with my, with, with, with my customers and clients that you didn't leave till the boss left and the boss felt compelled to stay some ridiculous hour. When we would have to ring an office in Germany one of our uh, branches in Germany. If you rang at one minute past five, you had zero chance of getting an answer from a phone call. Work finished at five o'clock and they were gone. And do you know what, Gary? I would say economically, industrially, financially, Germany is probably a better model to go for than Italy. Or am I being controversial there? Well, it depends if you mean southern or northern Italy, really. Well, I, I, I was in northern Italy. I was in Milan. I mean, in the south of Italy, this wouldn't count because there was nobody in an office in, in the south of Italy at 11 o'clock, I can tell you that. Germany, they're gone at 5 o'clock. And you ask a German, they say, yes, because you do your job when you're at your job, and you do it properly, and then you go home. <laughs> they have none of this nonsense waffling around. I'm just, I'm, I'm rereading this as we're talking, Michael, and I just, it was bad the first time, and it was actually equally bad the second time. Neve Horan asks him, I asked you before, before you became Thishuk, what was the most painful lesson from Fianna Fáil uh, were in charge during the 2008 crash? Can you remember? And Michal Martin laughs and says, I think it was the importance of standing out from the herd. Oh, yeah, because he's doing that so. Oh, my God. As my grandmother would have said, it's a wonder he doesn't choke on them. God, oh, my, standing out from the herd. This is the man who has been chasing the herd around South Dublin for so long and so hard. That I think that he's forgotten how to get, the, how, he's forgotten which way the road to Cork is. I mean, at this point, his shoes are probably branded by the Irish Times. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. That's lovely. Oh, it's, 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 it's still, it's, it's, yeah. it's like, I love puff pieces of this type with politicians during really fraught moments. Because they often go the other way. And they are so trivial and inconsequential that the politician involved looked like a fool. Did she ask him if he, to, was he a boxers or briefs man? And no, she did ask him did he suffer from loneliness though. Oh, very mm, deep. He says he, it can be lonely, but he's okay with that. There are times when I would love to go out and have a pint with somebody. I have heard some fantastic stories from Michal Martin uh, about pints, but they're usually when other people are drinking near Michal Martin and fuck up. <laughs> there have been some spectacular spectacular stories i would have thought his wife would be company he's married isn't he he has children i think they're down in the in the homestead i think he stays up in a flat oh here's another one michael martin she asked him what's your vision of a shared ireland because you know this is the new this is the new line from finna fall michael mm. it's a shared island and 
we're going to drop the harsh rhetoric of uh, unification and talk about the importance of sharing because sharing is you know, a very good thing. Sharing is caring. Yeah, and uh, his his vision for a shared Ireland, Michael. Yeah. And this is this is his his plan to unify Ireland. Is uh, that we all learn to share it together in harmony and peace, but also create economic opportunity. We want to get flesh on the bone of the rhetoric to get real projects done, which is my favourite kind of rhetoric. Rhetoric about moving on from rhetoric. Yeah, enough of that rhetoric. The kind of rhetoric you'll be getting from me will be the rhetoric against rhetoric. No rhetoric here. Down with rhetoric. Up with fancy stories about putting meat on the bone. Actually, that's rather an unpleasant image. I don't like that image. That's not pleasant. Oh, but, I mean, this is nothing to do with anything. Did you see that Amazon have actually created a United Ireland? I mean, that was the Trojan horse none of us were expecting. No. And as several people commented to me, there you go. I ordered a United Ireland and I got it the next day. There is there is a one line I quite liked. It's a, she asks him, what does it take to be the wife of a Taoiseach? And he just says, patience, infinite patience. Which I had misread the first time and thought he was talking about his own approach to work. <laughs> Nothing yet. I wonder is that being... You probably got a report on that. Is that the wife of, of the Taoiseach or is that just the wife of Michal Martin? I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure they have a very... Very positive relationship. Him in him in Dublin or in Cork, yeah. Maybe rocky at the start, but I think after the second round of consultants came in and wrote the re- requisite reports, I would say that things just came together at that point. Yeah, well, there are still a number of committees out on that, Gary. So yeah, I wonder how many. I wonder how many reports he got before proposing. It certainly would have had to gone to committee and gone through at least three stages of committee. And then you maybe would get some some outside expertise in on the subject. God, I, I as I, I've said before, I want Frank Clark to resign from the Supreme Court, but I hope the doll tries to impeach Seamus Wolf just because I want to have Michal Martin try and handle that. <laughs> How long will it go on? We won't have a Supreme Court effectively for years. It'll be it'll be glorious. I mean, they'll have the legal challenges, and then it'll be Michal Martin trying to consider if he wants to be the first person to impeach a Supreme Court judge. And that, I mean, that's two to three years of reports easily. You know what would be easier at this stage? I, if, if it's Michal Martin at the helm, I think it would be simply bite the bullet, have a referendum, and have Supreme Court B. Get the, get the Constitution to allow two Supreme Courts, like a backup Supreme Court, if the first Supreme Court isn't, isn't working. You know, like if you have a car in with the mechanics, you get the use of another car. Yeah, there is good news for Barry Cohen, though. Or Barry Cowan. <laughs> We're back with the co. <laughs> it's brilliant. We're back with Barry Cohen. I had, I had, that I had well, fixed that. Well and then he just New didn't York turn up singer. for a while. And now it's just it's right back to Leonard Cohen's less known brother. Uh, they, he, he says it felt terrible, personally, to fire him. Oh, dear. On a human level, it's the last place you want to be in. Particularly with Barry. Yeah, I imagine particularly with Barry. God, you feel sorry for me, Hall, don't you? That he had to do that to Barry. I, I know someone in the press office was like, this is a really good idea, let's do this. But Mihal Martin is a technocrat. He's not a man capable of putting across a great deal of human warmth in this kind of structure. This was not a good idea. Which is weird, because he can actually like come across quite well, just not in this. I don't know, Gary, if it's particularly a problem with Mihal Martin in this kind of context... Actually, I think one of the problems is 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 the is the is the is the format. I don't think this kind of piece does just works anymore. 
it would be, I think, far more effective to pretend to be more hard-hitting, to be a little bit more inquisitorial. And, and I think that would actually be a more effective use. It's, it's sort of whiplash in that, like, it's all very positive. And then she'll be like, are you worried about Joe Biden taking all the pharma jobs? And then he'll say something glib and then they'll just move on. But there's one point where she uh, she says... You know, can you be sure the lockdown is not killing more lives than it saves? Every hour, someone in Ireland dies from cancer. And cancer screenings are down 60%. And that's just one disease. And he just says, that's not because of the lockdown. That's because of COVID. And then she just moves on and asks him what the greatest lesson Fianna Fáil learned from the 2008 crash was. And it's just this whiplash sort of serious, trivial, 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 serious, trivial. Yeah, well, I mean, you have to put them in. No, I would be surprised if there wasn't a fair degree of... I also, I also like the part where she starts uh, expanding on his answers to him. So he says, you know, the importance of standing out from the crowd. And then the journalist who's interviewing him says, yes, and listening the, to the contrarian voice, you learned the hard way that experts weren't always right. Mm. When did that happen? Michal Martin deciding an expert wasn't right. She asks him about that and says, so you're mindful about the advice you're getting from Nepit? And he goes, yes, I go to other people for advice as well. And she says, uh, can you give me an example? And he says, well, I'm in a WhatsApp group. Oh, no, no, Michael, no. Anyway, it's, it's, it's funny more than consequential. Much like our lives. And I therefore think that maybe we'll use that opportunity being funny rather than consequential to say uh, have a happy Sunday to the nice people and we will be back on Wednesday uh, for the midweek special. For some reason the phrase funny but not consequential when referred to me just makes me think of the term or the Johnny Quash line that uh, if you're not going to be smart you're going to have to be tough. <laughs> Was that a boy named Sue? Yeah, I believe so. Um, I actually don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway. I'm off to I'm off to to uh, to go to YouTube and look and listen to Johnny Cash songs. And Johnny Cash, a boy named Sue, is the greatest song about normative determinism. And the rest of the world is off to Google normative determinism. Uh, until Wednesday, bye bye. Sorry, nominative determinism. If yes. you're going to Google it, Whoop, nearly fucked that up. <laughs> I wouldn't want to leave people on that. Uh, that would just destroy public confidence in my abilities. Say, say say goodbye to the nice people, Gary. All the best.